Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Allen. We're glad that you're joining us, whether here on person or online. We're in a series, eight-week series. We're on week seven, and it's titled, You're Not Far, and today's topic is the end of the beginning. Now, we'll talk to something that we all have in common, and that's we all had embarrassing moments, haven't we? Now, some of those embarrassing moments aren't a big deal because a week later, a month later, in this case, for me, two years later, you just kind of laugh about it. Some of you, I've shared this before. We were in Israel two years ago, and um, we got to go to the Temple Mount, where the temple was, uh, near the last day of our trip. And for some reason, I didn't get the message. My wife said she knew and she reminded me, but I wore shorts that day. It was hot. I wore shorts that day. Well, guess what? You cannot wear shorts on the Temple Mount. And so... They're prepared for dumb tourists like myself. <laughs> and so here's the picture of what I looked like that day, walking around on the Temple Mount. <laughs> they gave me a skirt to wear. I think it's the only time in my life I've worn a skirt. <laughs> but anyway, so we can laugh about it. Now it's not a big deal. Uh, nobody was hurt, <clears throat> whatever. On the other hand, we've all had embarrassing moments where we wish we could what? Undo, Right? They're embarrassing, we don't want anybody to know, and the people we know, we're, we're, not, we're not happy they know, and we wish you could just go back and undo it. Well, today we're going to look at, uh, as we've been looking at, Peter's story, and we're going to find uh, an incident in Peter's life where he wished he could go back and undo, and how our gracious God dealt with that situation. We're talking about things that are shameful and painful. They might involve sex, drugs, alcohol, money, uh, relationships, uh, any kind of things, job-related. We've all done some things we are certainly ashamed of. And this uh, next phrase you're probably familiar with, but it's a good reminder. Our past, our memories, may always remind us but they don't have to define us. And there's not going to be any greater example of this than Peter when we see what he did and, of course, what eventually happened. So this study is about a guy named Jesus, not any Jesus, a Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And it's not his account. Somebody's sharing their account. And the guy that's sharing his account or experiences is Simon Peter. So it's, it's kind of like his memoirs. He's writing this maybe 30 years later, looking back, and he's going to remember some good things, and he's going to remember one uh, thing he's ashamed of. <clears throat> now, it comes to us in our Bible as the Gospel of Mark, because Mark is the one that records it. Peter probably was illiterate, and so he's dictating this. Now, this is fascinating to me as we've been studying, because you think about, and Mark a, is a Greek, so I can imagine him asking questions of Peter, um, you know, can you explain this, and you sure you want to put this in, and so forth. Because he wasn't obviously writing the Bible, right? <laughs> what was he writing? He was writing or documenting his experiences with Jesus. Now, hundreds of years later, it was put together with other Gospels, stories of Jesus and Paul's writings, and it comes to us today in what we call the Bible. But it wasn't written that way. So if you have objections with the Bible, don't think about it as Bible, but think about it as one man's experiences with this man, Jesus. 
Now, Jesus had a bottom line message that he was sharing when he was going around teaching and preaching. And Peter shares it with us in the beginning of this book, and we've looked at it each week. And it's quite different than, than the gospel message of Christ today because the main ingredients, which we're going to talk about today and next Sunday, hadn't happened. So his gospel was, the time promised by God has come at last. What is that? The Messiah is coming. The promised one of God is coming. You've been waiting over a thousand years. Prophets have been dictating, uh, pro prophesying about it, and now it's, it's here. <clears throat> the kingdom of God is near. It's not far off. We're not going to have to wait for it any longer. Your response, my response, should be repent of our sins and believe good news. If the kingdom of God is near, that's fantastic news. Now, one other thing that was a mainline teaching of Jesus was this. You want to know what God is like? Yeah, it's kind of confusing. I have to admit, even as a pastor, Old Testament, God looks good at sometimes. God doesn't look so good at other times. So Jesus came to earth to do what? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God's like? Okay, Old Testament's the Old Testament. Uh, it can be confusing. Just look at me. So, if you're curious about what God is like, <laughs> the best way to figure it out is to look at Jesus, how Jesus acted and reacted and what he did. <clears throat> if you have a hard time in believing God, figure out what Jesus was about. Now, we've been using a map each week to kind of give you some bearings on what's happening and where you're going. So Jesus is from the yellow area called Galilee, did a lot of ministry up there, but the center of Jude, uh, Judaism is where? It's in Jerusalem, down in Judea, down in that orange area. So he would travel down there, it's like 90 miles, quite a ways on foot. Um, but as we looked at two weeks ago, he headed down, and he would, you don't go through Samaria usually, Jesus did one time, but Jews would go across the Jordan River uh, on the east, travel down, and cross back over where Jericho is. Most of you have heard of Jericho. Now, I, di I, I did some research this week, <laughs> and I said, you always go up to Jerusalem. Let me tell you how up it is. Jericho is almost a thousand feet below sea level. Not a hundred, but a thousand feet below sea level. Jerusalem is over 2,000 feet above sea level. So you're, you're going up over 3,000 feet from Jericho. Now, we did it in a bus, so it was no big deal. But you can imagine doing that on foot. I run on the Appalachian Trail, and it's tough going up and down the mountain. And they're only a couple hundred feet, 3,000 plus feet. And so even though it's 25 or so miles, it would have been quite a trek for Jesus to get to Jerusalem and his disciples and the crowd. But we looked at last week, he, he went into Jerusalem, he would go out at night, just a mile or two, and then he'd come back, and uh, <clears throat> the disciples were hoping for what? That this kingdom would happen, that they would be in power, and they'd get rid of the Romans. But Jesus was doing stuff that just uh, was confusing to them. He was throwing over the money changers' tables in the temple, and just kind of ticking off the religious leaders, and and if you're the Messiah, you've got to have the support of the religious leaders. So they were confused. And then they get to Passover night. This is Passover week. Uh, we call it Holy Week for, for Christians, but for Jews it's Passover week. 
and he's celebrating the Passover, their biggest holiday. And he had these words that we're used to as Christians 2,000 years later, but to them it would have been really disturbing. And we'll review this and then we'll go on. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it to pieces and gave it to his disciples. Take it, normal part of the meal. But then he said, for this is my body. What do you mean, Jesus? This represents, you know, the Israelites leaving Egypt. And then he goes on, the, 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 the cup of wine, which is part of the meal, and gave it thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Then, but then the dis- more disturbing words. Notice what he said. He said to them, this is my blood. No, no, no. What are you talking about? Jesus is getting kind of gory. It's just wine, which confirms the covenant between God and his people, this new covenant, this new way of doing things, this new and improved and better way. It is poured out. It's not taken. It's given. It's poured out as a sacrifice, not for just for Jews, but for many, for all. And then they go off to the garden, Gethsemane. Jesus is really upset, and he's praying. He's, you know, last-ish effort to get out of this. He's, he's calling a life to die for us. <clears throat> and then the soldiers come, uh, the religious soldiers uh, from the temple come with Judas, and they arrest Jesus. And what happens to Peter and the disciples? All his disciples deserted him, and ran away. And for Peter, this is especially significant because he made a vow that he would never do this. I vow I'll never do this. And, of course, he breaks his vow and runs. And so just when they thought the temple was, uh, the kingdom was close, that they were going to be in power and that God was going to, you know, bless them and God was near, it just seemed like God was not near. God was gone. The Messiah is arrested. There's, no, there's going to be no kingdom. And so we pick up the story there. They took Jesus to the high priest's home <clears throat> where the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law had gathered. Now, this is unusual. These different groups didn't like, like each other. They had different theologies, different philosophies, and they didn't get along very well. But they're getting along for one purpose, and that's they have a common enemy, a common foe, this popular rabbi named Jesus. And our story is going to flip back and forth between Jesus and Peter because Peter's telling the story and he's including himself. He said, meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and went right into the high priest's courtyard, not into the court, but in the courtyard. And he sat with the guard, warming himself by the fire at a distance. Now, no one be recognized, but close enough to see what's going on. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council, there were 71 people in this group, were trying to find evidence against Jesus, trying. Jesus, uh, trying Jesus, so they could put him to death. That was their goal. They couldn't find any. Now, how do we know what was going on in this council? Peter wasn't in there. How did Peter know? Well, if you read after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories about Jesus in our Bible, then comes Acts, the history of the early church, and it tells us that some of these religious leaders became Jesus followers. And I'm sure they shared about their experience there. The question is, why would they go from 
killing Jesus to following Jesus. And you'll have to come back next week to find the answer, okay? Uh, many false witnesses spoke against him. So not just a couple, but a bunch. But they contradicted each other. By, by Jewish law, if you could get two people to agree, then you could be uh, sentenced. So then the high priest, he's getting frustrated. He stood up before the others and asked Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer the charges? What do you have to say for yourself? Well, what charges? They hadn't agreed on any charge. People couldn't come up with a uh, common ev evidence to accuse him. Now, if anybody should have recognized that Jesus as the Messiah, it should have been this group. They spent their lives studying Scripture, and the Scripture prophesied about the Messiah coming. And they should have been the ones looking, yet popularity and bad theology, I guess you would say, um, caused them to miss the Messiah when he came. So they asked Jesus, what is Jesus' response? Well, he was silent. He made no reply. Again, reply to what? So the high priest asked him, critical point, critical question, are you really the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? So here's the question. And his destiny depended on his answer. Not only his destiny, Peter's destiny and your destiny and my destiny was dependent upon how Jesus answers that question. And so what's Jesus say? I am. I'm the Messiah. And with those words, he condemned himself. They didn't need to have any evidence or witnesses because now he had convicted himself with those words. So the high priest, he's, he's going crazy. He tears his clothes, shows his horror. Why do you need other witnesses? We, do, we don't. You've heard the blasphemy. What is your verdict, counsel? 71 of you, 70 others. Guilty, they cried. He deserved to die because the penalty for blasphemy could be death. Now, as we read this next part, pretty familiar to a lot of us, but think about it, you being Peter, and you're there seeing this for the first time and uh, literally feeling it. Think about the smells and the sounds and, uh, and what, what's going on. Then some of them, some of these leading high priests, religious leaders, began to spit at him. It's just kind of mind-boggling. They think it, picturing what's going on. Then they blindfolded him. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to be blindfolded. But make it even worse, if, if somebody starts hitting me, I couldn't see it coming. So you're just waiting for it, and, and all of a sudden somebody hits you, and you don't know when the next punch is coming, and then, then another punch comes. And then they say, prophesy to us. <laughs> another, another gospel says, you know, tell us, predict which one of us is hitting you. And the guard slapped him. And there's a certain humiliation with being slapped, isn't it? And they took him away. It's just such inhuman uh, behavior, such rage. <clears throat> now, if you're Peter, this next part, why would you put it in? And speaking for Peter, I would say, well, I certainly wasn't any hero. I might as well share the truth. And part of that truth is the grace and the mercy of God toward me, despite 
what he's about to share. So, scene shifts to Peter out in the courtyard. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself by the fire, being comfortable. She looked at him closely and said, you were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. Was Peter's response? I mean, he was. Peter denied, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And he went out of the court, uh, out into the entryway. So he, he's in the doorway to the courtyard. Just then a rooster crowed. Then the, <laughs> and when the servant girl saw him standing there, she began to tell others, uh, this man uh, over here in the doorway, he's definitely one of them. And evidently Peter overheard this, and he replied, no, 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 it wasn't, it, it, I'm not one of them. Some time passes a little later, and some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you're a Galilean. I mean, that's, even though it's Passover, it's 90 miles away. And evidently, there was an accent. You could tell if somebody was, or some form of dress, I don't know, but most like an accent. So, you're from Galilee, you must be one of them. Peter's response, curse on me if I'm lying. <laughs> he just cursed himself because he was lying. I don't know the man you're talking about. And immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Now, before you and I get too, too tough on Peter, um, you, and all, you and I are all have been guilty of doing the same thing, haven't we? We've all, at times in our lives, denied Christ. So let's just be honest. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. That's memory. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you ever knew me. He broke down and wept. And I pray that's been your experience and mine at times in our lives. When we had these experiences we wish we could undo, they were so embarrassing, we hoped nobody knew about them. And we shared them with Christ and it broke our hearts and He forgave us. Shifts back to Jesus. It's early in the morning now, and the leading priests and the elders and the teachers of religious law, the entire 71 of them, <laughs> met to discuss their next step. Okay, he's convicted himself. What are we going to do? They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Why? They convicted him. Well, this just drove them crazy because they were no longer in control. They couldn't execute anybody according to their laws. Romans were in control, and only they could execute someone. So the leading priest accused him, Jesus, of many crimes to Pilate. And Pilate asked, are, are you going to answer them to Jesus? What about all these charges they are bringing against you? What's Jesus' response? Again, doesn't say anything. Notice, much to Pilate's surprise. Why do you be, surpri uh, be surprised? If you're standing before the person that has the power of life and death over you. Are you going to stay silent? You're not going to try and defend yourself? You're not going to try and beg and, and plead and, and ask for mercy? As the uh, blind man asked Jesus on the road we talked about uh, two weeks ago, 
Jesus, have mercy on me. Pilate, have mercy on me. But no, not Jesus. Why? Why? Because this is the way, reason Jesus came. This was his purpose in coming to earth. And at this point, there was no, long, no reason to delay it any longer. So he remained silent. Pilate asked him, or asked them, excuse me, what should we do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? Well, they didn't call him the king of the Jews. Pilate realized this was a sham. Pilate realized there was no reason for him to be executed. This was a, a frame-up, uh, something to do with their, their, their strange Jewish religion. And their response was, crucify him, they shouted. And this was significant because not only did he want him killed, they wanted him cursed. And if you were hung on a tree, if you were crucified, you were cursed by God in their theology. And again, who was responsible for nailing him on that cross? Was it Pilate? Was it the religious council? Was it the crowd? It's you and I are just as responsible as he died for their sins as well as yours and mine. So, to pacify this crowd, because that's all Pilate was concerned about, he said, I'll release Barabbas to them. Now, don't have time to talk about Barabbas other than the fact that he was such a bad guy, they couldn't even make a slave out of him. They, they were going to kill him. And they, and they chose him over Jesus. And he ordered Jesus flogged, and we won't talk about that, but it just tore the flesh. People died from flogging. And then he turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified if that wasn't bad enough. Now, these soldiers, I'm going to tell you, I learned something this week. Why was there such brutality? Was it just because they were Roman soldiers? No, these were Roman auxiliary soldiers. What did that mean? These were people that weren't Romans that were uh, drafted into their army. And so these were, let's think about it this way. Jesus is a Jew. These were Arabs that lived around in neighboring countries. They made up part of this, uh, the Roman soldiers. And so you had this uh, uh, ethnic hostility going on as well as religious. So, what did the soldiers do? They took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters and called out the entire regiment. So it wasn't enough just to have enough soldiers to do the job. They got everybody together. They dressed him in a purple robe representing royalty. <clears throat> and then they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. If you're a king, you got to have a crown, right? So what was the crown? Thorns. Now, this is going to be significant when you see when it happens next. Then they saluted him. Hail, king of the Jews. And then they struck him on the head with a reed stick. What's on his head? Thorns. Driving the thorns into his skull. Spit on him some more. Then they dropped to their knees in mock worship. Hail, king Jesus of the Jews. Finally, they got tired of this, evidently. Tired of mocking him, making fun of him. They took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes and led him away to be crucified. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And the text simply says this. The soldiers nailed him to the cross. Now, 
Peter's not sharing details because everybody that would read this understood crucifixion. They'd seen it. They'd smelled it. Uh, they didn't need details. But there was variety. Some people were tied on the cross, which in some ways is better, in some ways is worse. Not as painful initially, but you could hang there longer for days. Eventually, always died by suffocation. The other thing that's significant is Jesus wasn't 10 feet in the air. Uh, Romans weren't going to <laughs> go to any extra effort. Plus, it was significant. They wanted people to see eye to eye these people suffering. You don't mess with Rome, and you're going to see. So Jesus was probably six inches off the ground as he was being crucified. That's important as we get to the next part of, uh, of the text. But for the kingdom of God to be ushered in, Jesus had to suffer. And it got me to thinking, for us to be part of the kingdom of God, it's going to require suffering. And as our country becomes less and less favorable toward Christians, uh, there's going to be more, quote-unquote, suffering to be in part of the kingdom. But in this moment, when God ultimately was most glorified, when God was, a, was willing to do what was necessary for you and I to have a relationship with Him, if we were there, we would have been most horrified. This was the unthinkable. Now, on, on top of the cross was a sign that said, King of the Jews. They wanted to switch it. He says he's King of the Jews. But Pilate wanted to say, King of the Jews, because king, if you're a king, you don't mess with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire does away with kings. And if we were there, we would have probably turned away, not being able to continue to, to observe the cruelty that they were bestowing on Jesus. <clears throat> it wasn't just the Roman soldiers. The text goes on. The people passing by shouted abuse and shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! Look at you now. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Well, then save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests were part of the crowd. They chimed in. He saved others. He can't save himself. And the question for you and I is this. If he had, he could have. If he had, he couldn't have saved. The irony is he couldn't have saved us. So we are all part of the reason that he couldn't save himself. And any time you and I act in, with indifference to the fact that Jesus died for us, what an insult to the suffering that he took on our behalf. Text goes on. <clears throat> Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it. Then we'll believe him. Jesus had done plenty enough for them to believe beforehand. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. We know from another gospel that eventually one changed his tune, changed his mind. They didn't see it then, but three days later they had all the proof they needed to believe. And they still didn't believe. Another gospel records that Jesus says, Father, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, those of you who have kids, when your kids were small and they would skin their knees and they ran into the house, who did they cry for? Ladies? 
Mom! He didn't cry for Dad. But Jesus cried out for his Father. And the text goes on, and we're almost finished. At noon, darkness came over the whole land. He'd probably been on the cross for about six hours. It was dark until three in the afternoon. At three, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. What does that mean, right? My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? It's really not a question, or not only a question, he's quoting Scripture. He's quoting Psalm 22. And the physical torture was horrible. The emotional betrayal was horrible. But the worst, worst torture of Jesus on that cross was what? His father turning his back on him. And Peter answers this question for us in, in his own uh, letters attributed to him. In First Peter, why? He personally carried our sins in the body on the cross so we could be dead to sin and live, live for his, what is right. By his wounds we are healed. The only way we could be healed, the only way we could have a relationship with God was through the death of Jesus. So God turned his back, turned away from Jesus so he could turn himself toward you and I. Jesus uttered another loud cry, and he breathed his last. The most significant event in the history of the world. Or second, next week we'll talk about the most significant. Something happened that Peter wouldn't have known at the time. The curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. A visual aid of what just happened. There was two curtains in the temple. We don't know which one it was, but it separated the people from God. God was too holy to be connect, the people connect with Him. And how do you tear a curtain from top to bottom? You can't. <laughs> it's too high. Only God could have done that. So God is saying, okay, there's no longer any barrier between you, sinful man, and me, your creator, God. I loved you enough to remove the barrier. So the covenant, this new covenant between God and the human race, you and me and all mankind, had been officially ratified when Jesus died. And there's going to be, there's some, now something greater than the temple. There's something greater than the Sabbath. There's something greater than the law. There's Jesus crucified. And everybody's invited, not just Jews, everybody's invited to accept that gift. And we get to think about this morning, I'm putting words in Peter's mouth, <laughs> but the same words you and I, if you're a Jesus follower, would say, I got precisely what I didn't deserve. What did Peter get after his denial? Forgiveness not only forgiveness, but restoration into relationship with the Father. He became a leader in the early church. So one of Jesus' purposes in coming was to show us the Father, that the Father is full of grace and mercy for Peter and for you 
and for me. Next week's Easter, hopefully you can join us. Let me pray with you. Uh, Father God, as we read these texts, and even though some of us have read them many times, it still hurts. <laughs> it hurts to read them. It's hurt to, th- to think about them, to visualize them. Yet then there's this part of us that, that there's this joy that you, God, our Father, would love us enough to turn your back on your most beloved Son so that we could all be your sons and daughters. Thank you for such grace, mercy, and love. And if you've never accepted that gift, we'll give you an opportunity this morning to pray that prayer. Jesus, thank you. Forgive me for all the embarrassing things, all the wrong things I've done in my life. I know you'll forgive me. That crucifixion is proof of your love. And that you'll restore me. I can't undo the past, but you'll restore me to real life here on earth and then in eternity with you. I pray that you would pray that prayer. Father God, we thank you. This holy week, I pray that we all would take some special time to just think about how amazing this story is. That you would love us that enough. And that you got you, Jesus, are alive. Satan could not keep you in the tomb. You've been victorious, so we can be victorious. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.